please take your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We've taken a few weeks off, and we are now back into the book of Romans as we are walking verse by verse, word by word, through this wonderful book of Romans. Romans is the gospel. If Paul had written a gospel, it would be the book of Romans. And so within this book of Romans is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. It talks about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so the first two chapters of the book of Romans have been very, very, very hard to listen to. They've been hard to preach, but the reality is Romans 1 and 2, and even coming into chapter 3, is all about man's sin. You see, what makes the good news so good is the bad news. If we didn't understand how bad the bad news was, we wouldn't understand how good the good news is. And so we come to Romans chapter 3. Romans 1 and 2 clearly present with us and to us the evidence that we're all sinners, that we're all guilty, both Jew and Gentile, that we are guilty of the quote-unquote big sins like murder and adultery, but we're also guilty of the small sins that we think are small and insignificant of uh, things like uh, uh, gossip and, and slander, but still yet we are guilty of them all. Every one of us has broken God's law. We've seen that the only way a person can receive eternal life with God is to live in perfect obedience to God's law. But that's not possible, is it? It's not possible for us to live a perfect life without sin. That's the point of Romans 1 and 2. We've all sinned. We've all transgressed. We've all broken the law of God. We are therefore condemned in the sight of God because we are guilty sinners. This is what Paul has said to this point. So there's your recap of how bad we are, Romans 1 and 2. But despite his bluntness and despite how, how clear he has been naming sins and, and saying how bad the bad news is, he, 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 we, 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 before we can turn the page to hope, he still hits it yet one more time. Just in case, after you read Romans 1 and Romans 2, just in case there is still one person out there that thinks that after they read Romans 1 and 2, that somehow they can save themselves. If there's still a person out there that believes that they can pick themselves up by their own bootstraps and, and walk into heaven on their own merit, he writes Romans chapter 3. And we are faced with four questions here. Four questions. He doubles down, he reaffirms what he's already said. And I know that this is not politically correct, but the Bible does not attempt to be politically correct. We want to be biblically correct, amen. And so as we come to the pages of Scripture, despite what Paul has already said, if there is still one looking to save themselves, we are faced again with the biblically correct truth of God's word. Please stand in the honor of reading God's word. Romans chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He says, I speak in a human way. By no means. He says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But 
if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Father, we thank you for this word. Now, God, as we approach this word and try to make sense of what it is that, that you're saying to us, Lord, open our hearts that we may hear a word from you. We ask these things in Christ's name and God's people said, please be seated. So verses one through eight of chapter three are very difficult verses to understand. I, I toiled in study this week, trying to make sense of, of what God is saying here to us in these eight verses. And he's using terminology and he's asking questions that, that really don't make sense to our American 2016 mind. And so as I prayed and tried to understand what it was that, that God was saying, I, 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 my points today, the four points are based on the four questions that Paul asks. And basically what I'm doing is I'm asking his questions the way we speak today. So the first question he asks there in verses one through two is simply this, are some people better than others? That's what he's saying in verses one through two. Are some people better than others? Are the Jews better than the Greeks? Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Are the Gentiles better than the Jews? I could literally spend three months preaching just this one topic. Is there a group of people that believe that they're better than somebody else? How easy it is for us to look down on others, that, that, that we, we look at our own self and we look at how good we are and how bad somebody else is, and we, we can easily point out somebody else's mistakes, but we don't see our own. People have done this throughout time, haven't they? they, they they've looked down on people and they, they've, they believe that they're better than others based upon skin color, based upon ethnicity, based upon income level, education level, even families. Families do this, don't we? I do it, I used to. You go to a restaurant and you would see that family with that kid that was just terrible. Don't look at me like that, you do it too. You say, what in the world was that? How is the, that family not teaching and training this kid? God blessed us with Abigail and God blessed us with Abigail having Abigail first. She is next to the most perfect daughter anybody could ever ask for. She just turned six on May 14th. And every time we go, when she was young, we would go to a restaurant with Abby and people, people would always comment on how well behaved Abby was. We actually had people in restaurants come up and buy our dinner for us and say, your daughter is so well behaved that we just wanna buy your dinner. So, it was easy for us to look at the other families and say, man, they're doing something wrong. So God blessed us with Abigail, and then God blessed us with Elijah. <laughs> our little tank, who's almost two years old. And our little tank, we can't take him anywhere. I mean, he likes to share his fries. You know how he shares his fries? Whew. You can be on the other side of the restaurant. He has such a big heart. This is why I tell Sarah. He has such a big heart that he's just wanting to share his food with a person on the other side of the restaurant. So if you're sitting in a restaurant and a, fly, a fry whizzes by your ear, your pastor's probably in the booth on the other side of the restaurant. Elijah's just wanting to share his french fries with you. But you know, it's easy for us to do, isn't it? How often we compare ourselves with other people until we walk a mile in their shoes. 
I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad off as, as she is. Paul says to the Jews here in verses 1 through 2, he says, look, you're not any better than anyone else. While, yes, the Jew is God's chosen people, they, they are still bound and they're still going to be judged by the same law and the same standard as every other person. In fact, Paul says that the Jew is held to a higher standard because they're going to be judged. They've, they've received this standard. They've received the law. They've received the word. So why a higher standard? Because God chose them. But God chose to, to dwell with them and live with them and, and talk to them. And so they've received all the mercies of God. And so they are held to a higher standard than everyone else. Verse 2 says they were entrusted. Look at it. Chapter 3, verse 2. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, that word oracle doesn't mean much to us today. If it does, you probably are tying, we tie a different definition to that word oracle. Today, the word oracle means a truth teller or a, a, a mystic, a fortune teller. But oracle, in, as it's used in the New Testament, an oracle as it is used in the New Testament simply is talking about the basics of Scripture, the basic teaching of God. And the point here is that the Jews have received the oracles. They've received the basic teachings, not deep, deep, deep truths, but the basic teachings. They've received the oracles of God, the basic teachings of the truth. Look at Hebrews 5.12. We have it on the screens. It says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. You see, the oracles of God are the foundational teachings, the, the basic teachings that God is creator, that, that there are ten commandments, that, that God has set forth his, his law, and, and, and all of these truths and these deep truths, yes, but they are building blocks. They're not hard to understand. And so Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 3 that the Jew is not exempt from God's judgment. Yes, they're God's chosen people, but yet they are not exempt no, they're going to be judged by the same standard as everyone else. In fact, Paul's point here in verses 1 through 2 is that, if anything, the Jew is held to a, a greater, a higher contempt because they've received the word. They heard the word. They've been taught the word from their birth. But they have chosen, they have willfully chosen to ignore God and ignore his word. Does that sound familiar to anyone today? If there could be anything said about the church in America today, it's that one thing, I believe. That we have been taught God's word. Many of us from our birth, we, we have hidden God's word in our heart, but how often we turn our back on God and his word. This raises the question, why do we do that? Why is it that... that Jews can receive the word, but turn their back on God. Why is it that Christians can receive the word of God, but yet we still turn our back on God? Why is that happening? What causes that to happen? If it's basic teaching, who can't keep just a couple of commandments? When Stephen's servant, Stephen the deacon, who was the first martyr of the church in Acts chapter 7, he, he's right before he is killed and stoned to death by the Jews, he's, he begins to preach. And, and in his sermon, what he's doing in his sermon is he's taking all of the Old Testament, the Bible uh, to Stephen, the New Testament was being written. So he was taking the Old Testament, the, the law of Moses, and, and he was preaching a sermon to these Jews that were about to kill him. And what he said was simply amazing. He said that everything that happened in the Old Testament was 
simply a foreshadow of things to come. That everything God did in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, all the way through Psalms and, and Proverbs and, and the, 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 the prophets, the major and the minor prophets, all of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ. But in his sermon, Stephen is talking about, in the early part of his sermon, he was talking about Moses and the Ten Commandments. And here's what he said in verse 37. We have it on the screen for you. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is speaking of Jesus. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received the living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. You see what Stephen's saying here in his sermon. He said that Moses gave the oracles of God, the, the, the basic teaching, the basic foundations, the basic instruction from God, but the Jews did not want them. They turned away from the basic teachings of God and turned to false gods. How ironic. How, how moronic, I guess you could say. You, they, they saw all these wonderful miracles, God parting the Red Sea and they walking across dry land and God providing uh, all of this food and water and shoes and clothing in the desert and in the wilderness, but yet still they chose to turn their back on the one true God and fashion for themselves a golden calf and they began to worship it. Why does that happen? Why is it that we so often see God move in our lives in tremendous ways and just a few moments later, we turn our back on that same God and begin to worship our other gods. Maybe it's the God of money or fortune or fame or whatever it is. Why is it that, that we are guilty just as the Jews are guilty? What causes that? It's called the sin nature. The sin nature, it plagues every single one of us. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, right? The sin nature. There's two aspects to the sin nature I want to teach you about this morning. Number one is the penalty of sin versus the presence of sin. I want to teach you about the sin nature. Let's see the difference between the penalty of sin and the presence of sin. On the cross of Jesus Christ, the penalty of sin was paid off. Jesus went to the cross as me. He was cursed because of me. He was punished on account of me. He was beaten in my place. Jesus took my penalty. He was lifted up so I could live. He became so much me. Jesus became so much me that on that cross, God no longer saw his son, but he saw me and my sin. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? God had not just forsaken his son, but at that moment, God was not just forsaking Jesus, but he was forsaking you and you and you and you and me and every human who has ever lived. He was forsaking sin. Because you see, Jesus bore our sin. He became your sin. He became my sin. So when God looked on that cross, what did he see? Not Jesus, not his son, he saw sin, my ugly sin there on that cross. I put Jesus on that cross. You put Jesus on that cross. God allowed his son to go to that cross and become our sin. God could not see his son because all he saw was my sin on that cross. 
and God looking upon my sin. My sin. There on that cross, the Bible says that Jesus was smitten with the wrath of God. God smote the sin. He, he beat up the sin. The wrath of God literally choked the life out of the Son. Why? Because we're all guilty of sin. There's a penalty for sin. When, when you break a law, there's a penalty. When you break the rules, there's a penalty. Think about football, right? Why not think about football? We're, we're in the middle of the summer, and so we're all getting ready for football season to start, right? There's, that, that, that's what we're doing right now. And, and so offsides, if you break the rules and you jump offsides, it's a five-yard penalty. If you grab somebody's face mask on the other team and you pull them down and tackle them, or you grab that face mask and turn their head, what is it, a 15-yard what? penalty. When you're guilty of breaking the rules, there's a penalty involved. When you're guilty of breaking the rules, there's a penalty involved. And just as true as that is in football or basketball or any sport, whenever you break the rules, if you go out here on 436 and you go 80 miles an hour, eventually you're going to get caught. You're going to be penalized. You're going to receive a ticket. When you break the law, you face a penalty. We've all broken God's law. We've broken God's law through our sin, our willful sin. We, We are guilty, every one of us. And just as Jesus was met with the wrath of God there on the cross, you and I should be met with the wrath of God because of our sin. Just as Jesus was met with the wrath of God, we're no different. We, we should receive the same reaction from God because of our sin. And some people will. It's God's wrath. We're guilty of sin. We're penalized. The penalty for sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. And not just death like you, 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 you put somebody in the grave and you go about your business. No, death and eternal separation. Eternal separation from God. That's where sin leads. An eternal separation from God. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God said, you know what? I want to do something because I see my children down here. And they're being penalized. And they're sinning. And there's no hope. I I, I want to come and I want to give them hope. I I want to come and I want to give them my son. I, I want to give them a way out. And so that's what Jesus did. Jesus came and he bore our penalty. He picked up the flag. He said, even though you've broken the rules, I'm not going to march you off the field. You're you're going forward. You're going in the way. And all you have to do is receive me as Lord and Savior. You cannot do it yourself. You're going to be penalized every single time. But if you turn to Jesus, he says, the penalty of sin will be wiped away. Even though you stumble, even though you still will fall, there's not going to be the penalty anymore. The penalty is gone. You see, it's not enough to be a church member. It's not enough to be a good person. This is Paul's point in verses, in chapters 1, 2, and also 3. It's not enough to be simply a good person. You must be a saved person. You've got to repent of your sin. Has there ever been a time in your life 
when you confessed your sin and you allowed Jesus Christ, you invited him into your life to be Lord and Savior of your life. Romans 10, 9 says that if you believe, with your, if you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Receive the risen Christ in your life today and be saved. He gives this free gift of eternal life. It's not something you earn. It's something that you receive. You didn't do anything to pay for it. All you're doing is the same thing that I did, was going down the field and making face masks and offsides. We were just being penalized, and, and we were getting marched backwards on the field. But what Jesus did was he came in and he said, I'm taking your penalties away. You're going to be able to live life without being penalized for your sin. That's the penalty of sin. But you see, there's still this nagging thing called the presence of sin. As Christians, we, we're not concerned so much. If you're a professing believer in Christ, the penalty of sin, sin no longer holds you down. You're no longer condemned for the penalty of sin. However, the presence of sin is a very real thing in your life. We've been saved from the penalty, but the presence is still there. Sin is all around us. As Christians, we, we still succumb to that old sin nature. There's a war that is waging. Satan wants you to crash and burn. If you are a believing Christian, if you have been forgiven of your sin and Christ is living in your life, you cannot lose your salvation. You understand that, right? Once you have been adopted into the family of God, you cannot be unadopted. Once you've been grafted into God's tree, you cannot be ungrafted out. Once you have received the spirit of God and he is living in your life and you have become alive in him, you cannot lose that. You cannot lose your salvation. Satan cannot steal your salvation, but he can steal your testimony. He can't steal your salvation, but he can steal your story. You see, there's a darkness, Christian, that many of us are flirting with. You, you, we're children of the light. That's what Christian means. You're, you're, you're a child of the light, but, but so often our sin nature still pulls us back to the darkness. And, and even though we're children of the light, we like to play in the darkness. And if you play with fire long enough, you're going to get burned. Christian, every one of us has a decision. In fact, we're just one decision away, one temptation away from crashing and burning, destroying our testimony. One decision, one dumb move, one fall, one falter away from completely devastating our whole story. You see, that's what lays in the balance. Yes, you've been forgiven of the penalty of sin, but the presence of sin is so very real that's why. That's how we can receive the oracles of God, yet turn our back to them. That's how the, the, the Jews could see God do all those marvelous things. That's how you can see God do all of those marvelous things, pulled you out of alcoholism, pulled you out of drug addiction, pulled you out of, of whatever lifestyle that you were in, but still yet, as you walk through the Christian life, you still stumble and you still fall. Why? Because the truth is there is a presence of sin all around us. The battle is going on. So we have to guard our heart. Paul here in Romans 3 is saying, don't look at yourself so high and mighty. No one is better than anyone else. Question number two. The second question is, do my mistakes mess up God's will? Look at verse three. Here's what he says. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? He says, by no means. Let, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. 
Do my mistakes mess up God's will? This is what Paul's saying. And the answer here is obvious. It's, it's no way. There's no possible way that anything that you can do, good or bad, is going to mess up the will of God. God's will is going to happen whether you like it or not. We of all people, people of faith, we, we should understand that. And here's a newsflash. There's, there's a lot of TV preachers out there that, that, that's preaching this this message that says that if you are a believer in Christ, that, that only good things are going to happen to you. That's so messed up. That's messed up so many people because, because what we think is, as a believer in Christ, and as soon as I turn around, something bad happens, we say, well, I must not have enough faith. No. Listen, God allows us to go through a pressure cooker at times to allow our faith to be strengthened. Just because you go through hard times or bad times is not because God hates you. Not because God is, is vindictive and, 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 and causing problems to come on your life. No, God actually allows things to happen in our life to bring us to a closer walk with him. When bad things happen, and they do and they will. When we hurt, when we cry, when we grieve. You know, we're told from time to time that it's not Christian to cry. You, you should, as a Christian, you should never cry, you should never grieve. How backwards is that? Christians are human beings, just like anyone else, right? You, you, you say something mean to us, it hurts our feelings. You punch us in the face, it hurts, we bleed. Jesus cried, did he not? Now, I like telling this story. My, my wife is from... A, a very good Christian home. Her dad was a pastor. I, I'm not so much. Uh, when, when Sarah and I began to date, I began to get a glimpse of what it was like to grow up in a, a Christian home or a pastor's home. I mean, they actually prayed before they ate every meal. I mean, they, he, her dad would come into her room before she went to sleep and, and, and pray with her before she went to sleep. They had Bible studies as family. This was foreign to me. They had Bible studies as family. It was awesome. I thought, that's great. You know what else they did? Her dad, her dad paid his children to memorize Bible verses. For a kid that wasn't raised that way, I'm like, gold mine. I said, I would have memorized the whole Bible. A buck a verse? Sure. How about Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible? Let's do this one. That's like 200 bucks right there. I said, so, so did you memorize Psalm 119? Because that's what I would have done. She said, no. She said, I actually memorized the shortest verses of the Bible. Because they were easy. They were the low-hanging fruit. I said, you know what? I probably would have done that too. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Yeah, two words, Jesus wept. Dollar right there, <laughs> all right? <laughs> Quickest dollar you can make, Jesus wept. <laughs> you know, it's the shortest verse in the Bible, but it could be the most powerful verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Why was he weeping? What was, the, what was the situation that was surrounding him weeping and crying and grieving? His friend Lazarus had died, right? Jesus had come to Bethany and there, uh, Mary and Martha, he, he was grieving with Mary and Martha, and they said, 
you, you just missed our brother is dead and he's in the tomb. And the Bible says that Jesus wept. How powerful is that? You say, well, what's so powerful about a man crying? I, I, thought, I thought a man crying showed weakness. Actually, Jesus was empathizing with them. Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus is the creator of the world. Jesus knew that he was going to say, remove that stone, Lazarus come forth, and he was going to raise him to life. Jesus knew that all of that was going to happen, but still yet he cried. Why? Because God cares. God looks down and when we hurt, it doesn't catch God by surprise when bad things happen. It doesn't catch God by surprise, but listen, God is not in heaven saying, ha, 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 showing them. No, God's in heaven. He's empathizing with us. He cares. When we hurt, he hurts. When we're happy, he's happy. You see, God empathizes. Now, his empathy does not mean that he's going to change our circumstances. Jesus knew all along what was going to happen. This time, it was a good situation. He was going to raise him to life, but how many people have we buried in our own lifetime and they've never come back? You see, just because we grieve and just because we cry doesn't mean that we're going to get everything that we want. However, we do know that we have a God who loves us very dearly, who cares for us, and he says that even when you hurt, I hurt. When you grieve, I grieve. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, right? Ephesians chapter 5, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, which is mockery. We, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. So if the creator of the world, if, if God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, if, 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 they, if he can be grieved, then shouldn't we be able to be grieved? If he can cry and weep, shouldn't we be able to cry and weep? If our creator can grieve, don't you think we should? But the problem, the problem can come in, though, that if you allow your grief to turn into doubt, Oftentimes in our grief, we can allow our grief to turn into doubt, doubting God, doubting God's promises, doubting God's miracles, doubting that God is in control. When bad things happen to us and it causes us and it pushes us to a state of grief, we can often look at our situation and get focused on doubt and begin to go down that downward spiral. We talked about this last week. It happens. When bad things happen to us, when bad things, when you get hurt in the church, I, I was talking to somebody the other day, they said, you know, I've been hurt in the church many times. I said, so have I. Many of my greatest hurts in my life have happened in the church by Christians, but also many of my greatest joys have happened in the church with Christians as well. You see, when we get hurt, when we get beat up, oftentimes what we do, this is what we said last week, we build up a wall around our heart. Remember when we said that? And we said, I am never going to allow this to happen to me again. Somebody leaves you, they divorce you, they, they, they say, I love you, I love you, I love you, and then they say, I'm not going to be with you, and they walk out. A parent who said, you're never going to amount to anything, and they, it hurts. You know those, those deep hurts of life? And what do we do with those deep hurts of life? We build a wall around our heart, and we say, I am never, ever, 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 ever going to allow anyone to hurt me that way ever again. And so we build up a wall around our heart, and we say, and, and you do a very good job of this. I do a very good job of this. We don't let anyone in again. We never let anyone hurt us the same way we were hurt before. But the problem with building a wall is that while you don't allow things in, you also don't allow things out. And what you're doing is you're missing the, 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 the blessings of God. You're, 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 you're shortchanging your children. You're shortchanging your spouse now because you were hurt at one point in your life and you built up this wall and now you're not, even, you're not allowing 
you're, you're not going to be hurt again, but you're not allowing joy and love and peace to flow out. When we, when we get hurt, we often build this wall of doubt around our heart. And what God is saying here to us is that we cannot do that. Our mistakes, human tragedy, does not mess up the will of God. If we understood that through good things and bad things that God is in control, it would change our perspective. Yes, bad things hurt. They're supposed to hurt. Our our city is still limping out of a lot of hurt here in the past few weeks. It's supposed to hurt. If it didn't hurt, there's something wrong with us. It's supposed to hurt when bad things happen. But we look at it and say, while I don't understand it, I understand that God's in control and my mess ups, my sin, my actions do not change the will of God. God is so much bigger than that. It changes perspective. It's like what Job said after Job lost his family, lost his friends, he lost his fortune, lost everything. He said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He said, good things, bad things, they happen. But at the end of the day, I'm going to look to God. Question number three, did God set me up for failure? This is verses five and six. Did God set me up for failure? Notice what he says here. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? You see, the giving of the law does not make us guilty. Our sin makes us guilty. The law is written on our hearts, right? What, what book of the Bible is, do we find the law being given to us? I'll give you a hint. The second book of the Bible in the Old Testament, Exodus. Exodus. So we, we get the law given to us in the book of Exodus. Where do we find the first sin being committed in the Bible? Genesis, yes, in the very beginning, right? I mean, God didn't just, God literally just created the heavens and the earth and he gave the keys over to man and man didn't have the keys for very long until we dropped the ball, right? We sinned. We disobeyed God. Now, here's a question that's really puzzling to some. How in the world could God hold Adam and Eve accountable for their sin if the law was not yet given? If sin happened in Genesis and the law wasn't given until Exodus, then how in the world could God hold Adam and Eve accountable for disobedience? How how could God hold Cain responsible for killing his brother Abel if murder was, the law wasn't given for for thousands of years later? How, How could that be, how could they be guilty of that? You see, the law is written on our hearts. God does not need the law to judge us. He judges us by his righteous character. Does that make sense? Murder is always wrong. You you don't have to tell somebody to take innocent blood is a wrong thing. We are inherently, we know that taking innocent blood of somebody else is wrong. It's there. It's written on our heart. It's called the conscience. Every human being born today and has ever been born has this conscience. And we know, we know right from wrong, but we so often choose to do that which is wrong. This goes back to the sin nature. We're under the penalty of sin, or if you come out of the penalty of sin, we're in the presence of sin. 
So we're always dealing with this good and evil, black and white, light and darkness. But God, you see, in his infinite love, he said, I'm not just going to leave you with your conscience knowing right from wrong. I'm going to give you the law. And right here in black and white, in the law, you're going to see my commandments. God didn't give his law to justify his wrath. God doesn't need to justify himself. He's God. But the giving of the law was the step in a direction that God was already unfolding his plan to redeem us. You see, the law was given to fulfill and to point to Jesus. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill the law. Isn't that interesting? See, the law wasn't given to, 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 to say all, all of us are sinners. We're all sinners. We know that. We don't have to have the law to tell us that. The law was given in order to, to point us to Jesus, our only hope from that sin. Finally, the fourth question. Verses 7 and 8, can I take advantage of God's grace? Can I just live in sin because I've already been forgiven? This is a question that Paul addresses, and I believe that many Christians struggle with this. Well, I, I, I can do this sin even though I'm a Christian because I know that I'm already forgiven. The obvious answer here is no, it's, that's called cheap grace. You're cheapening grace when you do that. To think that I can sin and do whatever I want to, and God is okay with that. That's like thinking that if, if, if fire and disasters give rescue workers an opportunity to display their skills and bravery, why should we not just set more fires? Let's cause more disasters so we can allow the rescue workers to show off their skills even more and their bravery even more. That sounds great until you consider the victims. And you see, dear friend, with sin, there's always victims. Someone is always hurt when we sin. Your sin affects more than just you. It affects so many other people. And you know this, don't you? I mean, why do you keep your sin hidden in your heart? Why do you keep it secret? If you didn't think that your sin was going to hurt other people, then you would just let it out. But we hold that sin in our heart because we know that if it got out and it met the light of day, that it would hurt more than just us. You see, sin, there's no victimless sin. And everyone including us Christians, must give an account for everything that we do. And we all face repercussions. We said this a few weeks ago, with every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. When we sin, there is consequence to that sin. Yes, we're forgiven. The, the, the penalty, the flag has been picked up. We're not marching the ball five yards, 10 yards, 15 yards every time we sin anymore. The, the penalty has been paid. However, the presence of sin is so very real in our life. And when we live in the presence of sin, we are missing out on the blessings of God. You cannot live in God's will and also in the presence of sin at the same time. 